the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that all my thoughts may be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that all my work, too, may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A friend of mine in the seminary, he's now Father Tom Richter, up in North Dakota, South Dakota, I think South Dakota, Bismarck. Bismarck is South Dakota, right? Bismarck is North Dakota. He's a, he's a priest in North Dakota. He grew up on a farm, I think 12 brothers or so. And uh, he and his older brothers were looking at a turbine that was just kind of going around and around. Big fan. <clears throat> and Tom thought he could stop it. So he put his hand in there and it just lopped off his thumb. And he was real upset with himself because his dad was going to kill him. <laughs> so he, he picks up his thumb, you know, right there at the base of it. Just picks up his thumb and he goes back to the house. And his dad was really displeased because he was in the middle of buying a tractor. Like the salesman was right there in the kitchen. So he says, go wait by the truck. <laughs> and so eventually his dad's done with the business and they hop on the truck and they go to the hospital. But it was too late to reattach the thumb. But <clears throat> Father Richter has this uh, dismembered uh, appendage with him. Um, has a little bow tie that he puts on it sometimes. He dresses it up on the anniversary of the of the separation. <laughs> One of his favorite pranks in the seminary was to leave it on the bed of you know some unsuspecting. Fellow. So it's rather it's like some incorruptibles. It's a little a little brown, a little suntanned, a little shriveled. Um, so there it is. I mentioned. I mentioned Father Richter because on frequent occasion he, um, he would volunteer at what is it, Dono Di Maria, I think, Gift of Maria Convent of the Missionaries of Charity, um, which is right um, in the corner of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, right there at the corner of the Vatican Wall. He volunteered at another convent, too. <clears throat> and on one of Mother Teresa's visits, he happened to have been there, and she always had extra time for seminarians and, and priests. But there was something that she, was, she would always teach people when she had the chance. She would always give out miraculous medals. But she would, she would grab your hand. She'd grab your pinky and say, the fruit of silence is prayer. The fruit of prayer is faith. The fruit of faith is love. 
and the fruit of and she gets and there's no thumb there so she just grabbed his whatever his bump and the fruit of love is service but it all begins with silence so it's impossible to pray without silence it's impossible to study really I mean when I was your age I thought I needed to have music playing while I studied um But I wasn't studying nearly as well as I could have. I realized that when I got to grad school. But it, it's, it's, it's impossible to be a Christian man. Because it's impossible to be um, prayerful without silence. So let me read to you a little bit of the rule of St. Benedict. Let us follow the prophet's counsel from Psalm 38. I said, I have resolved to keep watch over my ways that I may never sin with my tongue. I have put a guard on my mouth. I was silent and was humbled. And I refrained even from good words. Here the prophet indicates that there are times when good words are to be left unsaid out of esteem for silence. For all the more reason, then, should evil speech be curbed so that punishment for sin may be avoided. Indeed, so important is silence that permission to speak should seldom be granted, even to mature disciples, no matter how good or holy or constructive their talk. Because it is written, Proverbs 10, In a flood of words you will not avoid sin. And elsewhere, Proverbs 18, The tongue holds the key to life and death. Speaking and teaching are the master's task. The disciple is to be silent and listen. Therefore, any requests to a superior should be made with all humility and respectful submission. We absolutely condemn in all places any vulgarity and gossip and talk leading to laughter, and we do not permit a disciple to engage in words of that kind. It sounds much, but we're talking about a house which is dedicated to prayer, to constant prayer, to mental prayer. And so there are not only precautions they take so as to provide for their particular way of life, but what St. Benedict describes for us pertains to all of us if we're to have any kind of prayer life. But silence seems to be to be very difficult for us. We get edgy. We get nervous. Am I supposed to say something? Is someone supposed to be doing something? It's difficult to be still within a you know within a few minutes you're reaching for your phone or some why isn't my phone ringing my phone must must not be working um, we get we get nervous when there's too much silence at mass 
But what I want to propose to you is that silence is something that comes somewhat naturally to us. We just don't realize it. Not only did we begin our life in silence before the great um, trauma of being born, But as, as much as we think being, being a guy means having a song you're singing or having a joke to tell or having some information to impress people with, we also get really, really, really agitated when someone can't sit in the movie and just be quiet. Like, we don't even... We're, we, we just avoid them. I mean, it's just, it's just an hour and a half. Just be quiet. It's totally normal for us. So, so we can be quiet. We just what what we what we have to realize is that silence isn't the absence of activity and the absence of noise. Silence is what happens when your attention is wrapped on something or someone. So much so that speaking isn't part of the equation. So it would be very difficult to just sit and do nothing and be quiet. But what do guys do when they get together and smoke cigars or smoke pipes? They don't say too much. You sit in front of a fire, and you know, the ladies are in the other room and they're talking, and the guys are just sitting around the fire and just, they're just sitting around the fire. Or you're fishing, or you're hunting. And you know that, especially when you're younger and you're learning from someone older, you don't, don't make a noise and don't mess things up. You've got to be quiet. Now, it's, it's different when you're surf fishing and the waves are pounding and it's noisy, but sometimes you know you just need to be quiet. Don't, don't even don't move something in the boat that's going to make a noise. Just be quiet. Again, it's not the absence of activity. It's, in fact, the exact opposite. There is an intense activity going on that demands silence. That seems to translate well into, into other activities that men sometimes need to do in the military where there will be long stretches of time when you must be silent. In fact, your maintaining silence is an activity. It demands your attention. It's difficult. But in all these instances, there's something being hunted. Now, 
with regard to females, hopefully your activity is a little more noble than hunting. But so she's still on the phone, or she's getting ready, or she's getting dressed, or she's getting changed. And you're just waiting there. And you don't mind waiting. Because it's not that you have an activity that demands silence, but you're waiting for someone. So in the same way that Christians have a unique understanding of time, which begins in the Old Testament, which is that time isn't just going around in a circle, just repeating itself. The hands on your watch may be moving around in a circle, or the digits on your digital watch may be cycling through and repeating themselves, but, but time is directional. Time is pointing towards something, or actually so, towards someone. And, and, and the same is true of silence. It's attentiveness. You're waiting upon something, waiting upon someone. <coughs> Silence in, in prayer is just that. It's an intense activity that demands that nothing else be going on. And you're, you're waiting someone. You're waiting on someone. And you don't know when the Lord will make His presence a little bit more tangible, sensible. I don't mean an apparition or a locution, but but when you you know that God is near, you don't you don't know when He's going to do that. You don't. We don't flip a switch so that that happens. It's just simply we make ourselves present and we wait, and we know He's there, and we're looking at Him. He's looking at us. And when, it, when, when we are ready, he, he makes himself more deeply known. But we have to wait. And it's not as though we can just be sitting there, you know, reading a newspaper or working on a laptop, and then, well, okay, when I feel the immediate presence of God, I'll put this down and I'll pay attention. But... What's going on is love. So we have to we have to wait for him. It takes practice. Um, in the seminary, Father Richter was not on this hallway, but in um, in the first year of seminary, you're assigned a room. You just get thrown into wherever they put you, wherever they have room. Second year, third year, fourth year, maybe fifth year. There's a, a little lottery so that you can get into a, a room of your choosing. Maybe a bigger room, maybe a, a room with a better view of St. Peter's or whatever. And so by second year, I was moving over to a spot where there were friends of mine and, and they were um, intent on studying with a little more seriousness. It's quiet in the evenings. We'd get together in the afternoon for coffee or tea, and we'd, we'd talk about books we were reading or articles we were 
uh, articles we found helpful. We called ourselves Second Silent, Second Floor. The seminary had four floors, and it was in the shape of a of a thing, you know, shape of a. It was like a four, but the top of the post was missing, so it's a, like a zigzag almost. And so the one the one uh, hallway was near the children's hospital, so that was always first hospital, second hospital, third hospital, fourth hospital. And then there was uh, the convent, which was on the other side of the grounds of the seminary. And so those floors were first convent, second convent, third convent, fourth convent. And then there was the central floors. Um, So we called ourselves second silent. We were second convent, but we called ourselves second silent. Other guys in the house called us second Nazi, but... <laughs> or second fascist or whatever. They were. But we were we were quiet. We even put up a sign. Uh, I put up a sign at one point that's that quoted uh, Blaise Pascal. The depth. No, no, no. Blaise Pascal saying the fruit. The the no, no, no. The cause of man's discontent. The cause of man's trouble is his inability to be alone and quiet in his room and content. A little extreme, but it helped get the idea across that um, silence was difficult, but it was manly to be silent. I don't know who said it. I need I need to get the quote, but the depth of a man's soul can be measured by his capacity for silence. What I what makes the sense to me now is that being able to be silent is not just a matter of determination and patience. It's not temperament. But what happens when you try to be silent? Um, your thoughts go. Um, in different directions. It's impossible to not think. We're always thinking. So our thoughts can be distracting us so that we may not be making noise, but we certainly aren't silent. We're not still. And besides our thoughts causing trouble, our our affections, our emotions are tugging at us, distracting us, bothering us, tempting us, annoying us, whatever. And so what you have the opportunity to do with these years is to develop your intellectual life so that your thoughts are ordered. Not that you've answered every question, but that your thoughts aren't problematic. Your thoughts aren't causing you trouble. Yeah, you have questions, and there's a way to figure out the answer to that question. And at the same time, you have confidence in God and the church and in the power of reason and in the Holy Spirit to to work it all out. These aren't the thoughts that are going to cause you to stress or to lose sleep. To order our thoughts, it takes a great deal of effort, and many, many men don't even attempt it. More difficult, ordering our affections. So that we know what to do when a when a temptation comes, 
We know what happens when a, a legitimate affection is something that captures our attention at the moment. It's all, it's all ordered. It doesn't unravel us. It doesn't distract us from what we need to be doing. And so it makes more sense than whoever, whatever wise man who said the depth of a man's soul can be measured by his capacity for silence. A man's capacity for silence is a measure of how ordered his thoughts and his emotions are. It's a measure of his intellectual life and his effective life. There are two moments in the day when silence is usually avoided because it's most um, um, inevitable. At the end of the day, before you go to sleep, as you're falling asleep, you're alone. Completely alone. There may be other people in the room snoring or not. In years, you'll be married and your wife will be in the bed with you. But as you fall asleep, you'll be alone. And when you wake up, you're alone. And those two moments, we, I suggest we need to make deliberately solitary. Whether or not we realize it, the fear of being alone is the reason why we stay up and we're, we're active and active and active until we collapse and fall asleep in front of the computer or on someone's couch or while we're watching a movie. Instead of having deliberately made the choice, the day is over, I am going to go be alone now. I'm going to, I'm going to end the day. Or at the beginning of the day, you wake up, you're alone. You've opened up your eyes, you're completely alone. Not knowing what to do when we're solitary has a lot to do with just staying in bed, trying to go back to sleep. And it has a lot to do with needing to play music both while we're sleeping or falling asleep or as we're getting up. So my universal challenge, but to you in particular, is to make those moments of solitude deliberate. And, and you realize how, how difficult or strange it is to, to know that you are alone at those two moments of the day. And it's either... Lonely, or it's with God. So the silence, silence if, if it's just merely feeling the pulsating of blood vessels in our ears or hearing something electrical going on in the house, is strange. It's disorienting. But if that silence is, I'm, I'm, I'm with my God, then it's not strange at all. St. Benedict has a little bit to say about silence at the end of the day. Chapter 42 of the rule. I'll skip through a little bit of it. Monks should diligently cultivate silence at all times, but especially at night. Accordingly, there will always be the arrangement, whether for fast days or for ordinary days. 
When there are two meals, all the monks will sit together immediately after rising from supper. Someone should read from the conferences or the lives of the fathers, or at any rate something else that will benefit the hearers. On fast days, there is to be a short interval between Vespers and the reading of the conferences, as we have indicated. Then let four or five pages be read, or as many as time permits. This reading period will allow for all to come together in case any were engaged in assigned tasks. When all have assembled, they should pray Compline, and on leaving Compline, no one will be permitted to speak further. If anyone is found to transgress this rule of silence, he must be subjected to severe punishment, except on occasions when guests require attention or the abbot wishes to give someone a command, but even this is to be done with the utmost seriousness and proper restraint. Now, it would be a little weird to impose grand silence in your room or in your home over your wife and children. But the reality is that we, if, if we're doing everything we can to avoid being alone, even at the end of the day, then we're running away from something. And we're not recollected and we're not praying. It might do well, especially during the season of Lent, to consider the ways in which we sin, the, 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 the faculties that we misuse, that we use for sinful purposes. Sometimes it's good to, to, to chastise those aspects of our life or those parts of our body that we use for bad purposes. I haven't satisfactorily found the origin of the word, but chastise isn't just punish. Certainly it's to make that thing chaste. And so in particular, our speech needs to be chastised, needs to be made pure, needs to be made holy. So think, as, as Lent continues on, think about those, those things that we naturally avoid when we've misused it. You eat way too much on a given day. The next day, you don't even want to eat, especially here. You don't want to do that to your body, you know, just out of respect. Well, think of, think of the ways in which our speech gets us into trouble. Maybe chastise your speech. Speak less. Choose your words more carefully. Think of your ears and, and the ways in which we allow what's, what's going into them to get us into trouble. Chastise our hearing. There's a beautiful episode in uh, the book by uh, Mother Mary Frances, the founder of the Poor Clares in Roswell, uh, New Mexico, who just died a few years ago. And she talks in A Right to be Mary about a, a young poor Claire who was asked to sing something as they were establishing the new monastery. There were workers who were there and they were interacting with the public in a way which is unique for poor Claire's. And the young nun said that she had asked for permission in order to sing a song for this um, guest. 
And the guest was bewildered. And the, and the nun simply said, well, we only sing to praise God. It's the only reason why they used their power of speech. St. Francis de Sales has a little bit to speak about speech. Always speak of God as of God that is reverently and devoutly, not with outward show or affectation, but in a spirit of meekness, charity, and humility. I have to admit, I thought of Christendom when I read these two paragraphs today. As is said of the spouse, as is said of the spouse in the Canticle of Canticles, distill as much as you can of the delicious honey of devotion and divine things drop by drop, now into one person's ears and now into another's. Pray to God in the secret places of your soul that it may please Him to send this holy dew deep into the heart of those who hear you. Above all, this angelic office must be done meekly and gently, not by way of correction, but of inspiration. It is wonderful how powerfully a gentle, loving explanation of some good practice attracts men's hearts. And this here in particular I commend to you as you go back to your sacred duties. Never speak of God or devotion in a routine or thoughtless manner, but always with attention and reverence. I say this so that you may avoid the strange vanity found in many who make a profession of devotion and on every occasion speak of words of piety and godliness in a mechanical way without thinking of what they say. After they have spoken in this way, they think that they think they are such as their words attest, but they are not. So whether it be in silence or in curbed speech or in the chastised tongue, I um, invite you to, um, to do what comes to us so naturally at other times, and that's just to, to be quiet, to be still, and to be with the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, it is now, and it shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.